0: Bonzilla presents Planet of the Apes. Each week we rocket into the Planet of the Apes. This week we take a look at the original Madhouse classic from 1968, Planet of the Apes! Welcome once again to Bonzilla Presents. I am Nick. I'm Will. And we are here today uh, with another brand new series to discuss. Uh, We are starting a new line of films, which I'm very excited to dig into further. And if you missed our Lone Ranger episode, which you shouldn't because there was a lot of of chaos in that one, but also a, a a very... Interesting discussion on what we deemed a complicated film. Uh, And if you had not seen the title of this week's episode, we are talking about the Planet of the Apes franchise and starting, of course, with the original 1968 classic today. Yeah, I'm I'm excited. I'm excited. I'm very excited for this one because uh, it's been... You know, I've always enjoyed, and I will talk about today. I think this this first part of the film is such a banger of a motion picture. But I've always been very curious about those original sequels. I have not seen any of them. I, I generally know what has happened in them. Like, I'm not like completely blind. I know kind of like the sequence of events that happened with these move in the, in the next couple of films. But I'm very excited to see this franchise. I'm excited to, to visit the Tim Burton 2001 version. And of course, like the, the recent trilogy is also just on another level. I, I think what's interesting about Planet of the Apes is sort of the, it, I think it's a different franchise in some respects than we've, we've really seen. Um, it, but also in some ways, it's very much more similar to, I, I think it does share sort of a, a base thing with some of the Godzilla stuff where it has its origins in sort of, having a big message and having that sort of you know eye on what what our culture is and sort of that aspect and that's what makes the franchise so memorable but it is also a franchise that sort of has a wide variety of takes in in some respects and obviously we're going to be looking at the films but there's also been you know a television series an animated series other types of spin-offs and comics and everything like that and it, it is a franchise that I think sometimes it even surprises me at how big it's gotten considering sort of what the franchise actually is, at least from my perspective on it. But I, I think it's a franchise that a lot of people, especially a lot of filmic people, hold really near and dear to their hearts.
1: Yeah, I think one of the reasons I was looking forward to it was because, I mean, just even the whole that this was the ne- one of the next franchises we were doing because it's an equal amount of. I, I feel like I'm in the same boat you are, where I I know I I know the franchise, but it's kind of like there's enough movies that I have seen and a bunch that I haven't seen, and especially when we get into like this original like series, like other than the first one, obviously, like I don't I believe I'm in the same boat. I haven't seen any of them, but then we get into the Burtons, and then we get into um uh, into like the the modern uh, trilogy. Uh, the anti circus trilogy, um, and and it's and and it's exciting to just j- jump into it with that level of um from that perspective. Yeah. It's and also, and and also, it's interesting because you're right about like going to talk about the legacy of the film because the Planet of the Apes, especially the original one, seems to have like a bigger cultural kind or like a pop cultural uh stamp than I think that. I think that maybe you and I of our age, we like just missed. But when you talk to people of the time, like it, it, there, this, the movie did have a, have a pretty big pop culture stamp. Oh yeah. You know, just other media and everything.
0: Right. I mean, like just the, the, the look of the apes. And I think also talking about the technology and the, and the makeup, which I'm very excited to discuss uh, throughout these films. Um, But I, I kind of always think that like my, introduction to that world essentially was that little cameo uh parody that was in Spaceballs right like even that is like but that is so distinct because they take that distinctive original apes look and it's just like that's part of you you know hey that's planet of the apes and you just kind of have that that consciousness of that
1: yeah yeah um, i mean to the point that i think i mean even didn't we make the joke during um uh, Godzilla or the Terra Mecha Godzilla when the yes. aliens were like I, I believe that it was in that one, right? It was no, I think it's, was the it? first, it's the first. It's the first first one, yeah. Right, because it, because in the second one we were complaining that they don't come back as apes. right. They don't they don't have the makeup anymore. But it is funny because we always reference Planet of the Apes because Planet of the Apes like really like you're right that makeup and the way that they look is very iconic. Yes, and and you're right, and you get into like the pop culture jokes. Uh, obviously, you know, you're probably going to hear us like uh, qu- uh, quote the song Dr. Zaius from The Simpsons, like yes. multiple times. To- like I couldn't get through the movie without even thinking of that, too. Um, and then um, and then we'll get to the quotes and then and again, this is jumping way ahead. But it was interesting because I didn't really have a connection with it growing up at all. So one of my biggest introductions to the whole franchise really was. The tim burton movie mm-hmm. but i kind of knew culturally like all like the things so even i went into that movie kind of like realizing like okay this is what they're emulating from the from the original series and everything so it's a very I'm, I'm glad we're doing this this franchise i think you had mentioned it and i was like yeah that's that's one of the ones we should do
0: yeah for sure uh and and we will eventually get to all the craziness of the rest of those films i know there's, uh, there's elements of all of them I'm, I'm very eager to, again, discover, but of course we have to start with the original 1968 film Planet of the Apes uh, and to talk about its sort of origins and, and how this very iconic film came together. Uh, so pretty famously, the uh, Planet of the Apes was originally a French novel by Pierre Boulay, um that producer Arthur P. Jacobs was very infatuated with uh, and he, he he snatched up the rights pretty early on in that book's existence in 1963 and spent essentially the next five years trying to pitch this around Hollywood. He went to basically every studio at one point or another. He hired concept artists to kind of showcase, hey, this was what the movie could be. He went to Warner Brothers, Paramount, basically all the major studios at that time outside of Disney, essentially. Uh, and he said he was essentially laughed out of every room at one point or another of just like spaceships and apes. And what is what is this movie? And like this book is what, what you can't adapt this to the screen. Like, what what are you doing? Uh, eventually, though, he does have an in. With uh, 20th Century Fox after he makes another movie, What a Way to Go. And uh, had also helped along the pre-production of the musical version of Dr. Doolittle. Uh, that the studio released also in the 60s. And essentially, he was in good standing with Fox at that point. And by 1966, he had convinced them that this was going to be a movie to be made. And he had a major writer already on board to help out with the script one, Rod Serling of the Twilight Zone fame. Uh, so, Rod Serling's script was very much close which is funny
1: which is funny cuz sorry to, uh, but like it's funny how Planet of the Apes really is like a twilight zone yeah esque yeah kind of there was plot. actually
0: there was actually a discussion at one point of like getting the rights from CBS to make it like a twilight zone movie of some sort um because even though the twilight zone had been off the air for a decade that still also was something that had a very big pop culture standing and Serling himself was still a very recognizable name and recognizable figure from being the host of that show. Uh, and, and Serling's script was very much more in line with what the novel was, which, uh, if, you, if you know anything about the novel, the, the Ape Society is a more contemporary 50 60 society with cars and buildings and transit and jobs and everything like that. It's a lot more of a, an ape society. And then the humans are kind of on the outskirts of that town. Um, but Sterling, very famously, as we'll discuss at length, I'm sure, changes the ending to the novel, um, which the original novel ends with uh, the lead uh, man character who becomes Taylor in the film, uh, you know, returning to Earth to discover that, hey, it's also become an ape society. But Sterling felt that that, Sterling felt that, that wasn't a strong enough ending for kind of the message of the movie Uh, and switch the ending up. Uh, So Fox was sort of still shakily on board at this point. Um, Even with Sterling, even with this script, they they needed kind of a couple things. They needed to show, they needed to be shown that this, the apes would look good, that the apes would be passable for screen because the big worry of everybody, especially the executives, and even... um, Arthur P. Jacobs had this worry, too, That's that the audience would sort of laugh at these apes as opposed to kind of taking them seriously in any regard. So that was the one thing that Fox needed. They needed a screen test of the apes and how they would look, and they needed a good makeup guy on board. The other thing they needed was they needed a huge star in the role of Taylor, who was adapted from the book uh, and sort of shifted in Serling's script, but still kind of this main astronaut character who is welped into this world of, you know, apes society. So on March 8th, 1966, Arthur P. Henson calls in a bunch of favors to get this screen taped wrapped up. The first favor he calls in is his number one choice for the role of Taylor. Uh Charles excuse me. Charlton Heston. Uh, Charlton Heston was always his first choice for the role of Taylor. He knew that the studio wanted someone big. And really in Heston is is an old school big Hollywood star. Like he No. No. <laughs> but I mean like in the sense of like you know we talk about how the Hollywood star has essentially gone away and like maybe it's only Tom Cruise these days is like their only true like Hollywood stars no we kind of no
1: know. no not even Tom Cruise is like
0: a uh, Charlton Heston
1: dead? yeah no no. no no but Heston this was like is a
0: whole era right it's a whole no it's a whole different era like Heston was like biblical epics he was Moses he was John the Baptist the greatest story ever told he was Ben-Hur he was in all these gigantic productions and movies and iconic roles and heston um was was someone that like if you got him on board with a movie even in this era right like this was sort of getting into he was still a huge star obviously he was still doing a bunch of things into the 60s but as you get into the 70s that's when he sort of it it shifts a little bit away out of the stardom but he was still like a huge name and people would go out to see movies because he was in it and arthur benson had a bunch of uh uh, backups his backup if Heston didn't want to do it was Marlon Brando, which would have been something else as well. Um, but uh, Charlton Heston he 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 sent the book and he thought the book was trash, but he saw something he saw that this could be something big and he had heard that Rod Serling was on board and he liked Serling as a writer. And he was like, well, this is something I, I haven't really done any science fiction of this nature uh, up to that point. He eventually would also do Soylent Green a couple of years later, kind of in that same wheelhouse. Um, but he was someone who was sort of like, I'm going to take a chance on this. As, as ridiculous as it seems and very out of character for me in terms of what I usually do. I, I get the good feeling that there's something here. And he agrees to agree agreed principle to be in the film and agree to the screen test uh, with our other apes. Now, the apes that he calls in are um, his first choice for the role of Zeus which was also legendary actor Edward G. Robinson, um, who probably you, you would know him if you saw him. But it, it, to think about how Edward G. Robinson's is... Um, Chief Wiggum of the Simpsons is based on his kind of voice and, and, and talking style. So you kind of gotta mm-hmm. think of that voice as sort of an ape. Uh, and also two unknown actors from the the Fox uh, co- contracted, uh the Fox contracted, you know, actors, which was uh, James Brolin in a, a young James Brolin as the Cornelius character. And Linda Harrison, who would eventually go on to play Nova in the movie as Zira. So this screen test was performed alongside the makeup work. And this is the very important point of why this movie is made is because of the legendary makeup work of John Chambers. Now, John Chambers uh, was already pretty well known in Hollywood circles for his uh, design work and makeup work Uh, at this point. He was known, and this is attached to another series we are familiar with, he was known as the creator of Spock's ears because he was one of the head makeup designers for the original Star Trek series. So he helped design the Vulcan look uh, as well as the Romulan look, obviously, and all the aliens in that series were his work. Uh, But Chambers was basically said, we need to make these apes look real. We need the apes to make these look passable so we can get this movie made. And Chambers' whole deal was he basically reused sort of a experimental makeup mask sort of thing that he had developed during World War II in an effort to help disfigured soldiers that had come back home from war. So he essentially shifted this sort of mask makeup thing that he had worked on into this ape makeup for this film. And the screen test essentially was well received across the board by everybody who was there. Heston felt that the the film could work after seeing this Fox was a little bit relieved and were also very happy with, with the choice of Heston and thought that that would at least as you know, a all their, their worries about the movie's possible performance. So after that screen test goes on board, the movie is, is officially greenlit and we're on our way into production. Now, um, Heston, of course, is signed on for the role of Taylor, uh, who was originally Thomas in the script. Uh, But Edward G. Robinson does have to uh, drop out because the makeup uh, accentuates his health issues. And he just felt that he wouldn't be able to really perform comfortably in the movie. Uh, So eventually the role of Dr. Zayas goes to Maurice Evans, uh, who was uh, a pal of Charlton Heston's uh, who had, they had worked together in previous films as well uh, and really set the tone for sort of the style of the eight performers as the rest of the cast would kind of come together um, from sort of Maurice Evans's British kind of accent and his accent that he gives Dr. Seuss, uh the orangutan character. Um, one of those original apes from that screen test, as I mentioned, is uh, Linda Harrison, Who had played Doctor Zira in in that uh, uh, screen test, and Henson, or sorry, Arthur P. Jacobs, uh, felt that he he needed a more experienced actor for the role of Doctor Zira, uh, especially because it would be, be a major speaking role. But he also did want to keep Linda in the movie, mostly because she was his mistress. And wanted to keep her happy and wanted to keep her, you know, on his side of everything like that. So he eventually gives her the mute role of Nova and casts Kim Hunter in the role of Dr. Zero, who was another very experienced actor, stage actor, had done the Streetcar Dane with Marlon Brando. Very notable name. Uh, she said that she had a fantastic time working on this movie, but the the makeup, process every day the, the very lengthy makeup process was very anxiety inducing for her so she had to essentially take xanax every day <laughs> uh to make it work and she said like one she said in a quote that one time she felt that okay i don't really need it anymore i've kind of gotten used to the makeup so she went into makeup without it and the makeup person said okay you need to take it next time because i'm not wrestling you again on this makeup
1: and people need to remember, like, I mean, for those who are not familiar uh, with, you know, with, like, the industry in that way, like, very convincing good makeup like that is a laborious process. Yes. We're talking, like, you sit down for hours mm-hmm. to, like, to do it. I, I remember uh, there, there's always that famous story about how, like, you know... Uh, I think like didn't like Jim Carrey like uh like compare getting into the suit for the Grinch to like waterboarding or something
0: like so it's
1: like it's like and you do you have to you have to sit there and I'm sure it's only as it gets bet it got better Mm -hmm. the longer you have to sit there yeah (laughs) so yeah yeah so it's a it's a it's no joke
0: yeah um and she also uh, had mentioned at one point that there she was very. Annoyed by this running gag on set where all the ape actors would be given bananas uh, during their lunches, uh, so she was. Uh, but she all overall had a good time, especially with her on-screen partner Roddy McDowell, who eventually does step into the role of Doctor Cornelius. And uh, Roddy was one of those people who was actually a very key casting on the movie because Roddy won very game to do all the ape stuff, all the ape makeup. He loved the idea. He loved the makeup. He loved expressing through the makeup. But Roddy was someone who knew just from his experience as an actor that you needed to kind of give those masks and those makeup a little bit more of a performance to really make it work. So he actually coached many of the apes and orangutans that were in the cast to to be like, hey, you need to give every every movement a little facial tick, a little movement here. You need to make these feel real by really emoting even when you're not saying something or even more emoting more when you're saying something. And and Roddy was credited a lot into making it, 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 it helping the makeup work in tandem with the acting to really make the ape society and those apes feel very real. Um, so At this point, right, we're kind of getting this cast together, but we do need a director as well. And our director of the movie is eventually Franklin J. Schaffner. Now, the original choice and the original person that Arthur P. Jacobs was talking to was Blake Edwards of the Pink Panther fame, also of his of his work with uh, eventual work with Julie, his wife, Julie Andrews. Uh, and Victor Victoria and everything like that. And Edwards was very interested in the film, but the constant delays in the pitching process eventually just he had to take other projects. Uh, and so Franklin uh, Franklin J. Schaffner comes in. Uh, Schaffner, very notable uh, directorial name, event, you know won Academy Award for his directorial efforts for Patton. Was a it was the leader of the Directors Guild for about a decade in the seventies and eighties. Very notable name in directing, and he also made a very important choice with this movie, in the sense that at this point that he came on, he still had the original Serling script, which had that modern take on ape society, and Schaffner made the executive decision that we're going to change the ape societies to something a slightly more primitive, still more advanced than the humans of that time, of course. But something that's a lot, no cars, you know, riding on horses, guns, sort of this a little bit more of a rural type society, uh, even as advanced as it is. And he did this for two reasons. One, he felt that it more connected thematically with the story and the ending and felt that there was a lot more to say through that version of an ape society. And two, he did it to keep the budget down because then he didn't need the red cards. He didn't need to build these big sets. They could film mostly on location out in, in the, the deserts of Arizona and in California. So he decided to make that decision. And with that, brought in a new writer, Michael Wilson. Um, so Wilson is credited with basically the, the most iconic parts of the movie outside the ending. The sort of the dialogue and the actual story itself and sort of the little character moments are all kind of Wilson's and Serling gave all the credit to the world, to Wilson that Serling in interviews after the movie came out was essentially said the, the basic story, the structure of the script and the ending is mine. But, but, but Michael Wilson essentially did a lot more with the script and he was very complimentary to Michael Wilson's work, especially because Michael Wilson was someone who was formerly blacklisted um, from the, the, the communist uh, hearings in the 1950s, and had just kind of gotten back into good graces with Hollywood, and he took a lot of that experience, especially with the trial scene, to kind of showcase sort of that element of, you know, the tr- how the truth can be, you know, manipulated by those in power. That sort of element of it. So that kind of wraps up the script and in the development of the film. Uh, and that will lead us into filming, uh, which begins in May 1967, just about a year after that screen test. Um, it was about a three months, sh- you know, three or four months shoot May, uh, late May to early August. Um, and they they took the early scenes out the, the desert sequences that uh, encompass the first half of the film were all shot in Arizona while most of the rest of the movie is shot in Malibu and on the Fox lots, of various places around California. Uh, a couple notable things about the shooting of the movie. Uh, Charlton Heston was actually dealing with the flu for a good portion of uh, f- uh, his major scenes in the film, but the producers felt that the voice that he had due to the flu was actually an addition to the character of, uh, uh, of taylor and, and and so asked him to continue shooting um the arizona heat really got to most of the crew at the time it was very hot 100 degree days basically every day when they were shooting in the summer and so there was a lot of issues with fainting on set including heston at one point uh he, he and heston in his autobiography essentially said that You know, he felt like hell most days, but he still really felt passionate about the work and so tried to push through as much as he could. And he said one of the worst days for him, the day he felt worse was the day that they had to shoot him with the fire hose constantly. And he said that he felt like hell and that it got even worse whenever that damn fire hose would hit him. So uh, there was that. Um, So uh, it was noted as well that... uh, 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 Kim Hunter noted that one of the funny things about the movie was that on the set, um, you would you would see all the different apes, like the the gorillas and the orangutans and the chimps, all sort of huddled together, uh, just sort of naturally. One of those types of things you hear about all the time in like science movies, like oh yeah, all the all the different aliens hang out and and and, and together, mm-hmm. which is always something that's super interesting. Um, the ape uh, makeup, of course, had to stay on for the entire shoot. So all their meals were liquefied and through a straw because they just couldn't afford to take the makeup on and off. Um, it was also noted that had how much fun Rodney McDowell had on set. He would actually request to go home with the makeup on. And he said that he would love driving to uh, his house in this full eight makeup and like making people take a second look and other drivers, uh, you know, kind of passing by with that as well. Um let's see what else we have here. Um, what else do my notes say? Um uh, yeah, the yeah, the Ape Society, the Apes, the Ape Village was built on uh the Fox Backlot. And one of the other things that a lot of everybody notes, including Dowell and Heston in his in his diary, was that um Franklin G. Shafter was very eager for people to play on set in terms of like improvisation and you're not necessarily all the dialogue was improvised Was just moments and, and different versions of emotions and everything like that. The, the one that does make it into the film of these improvisations is the film's famous hear, no evil, see, no evil speak, no evil reference Mm -hmm. was, was a, a last minute improvisation on the day of that shoot. Um, And was debated a long time, whether that was going to make it into the movie until the first test screening, uh resulted in a huge ovation from the audience when that happened so they knew that they had to kind of keep it in the movie um the the, the film was just it, it seemed like it was a, a wild time to, to be there uh you know like I said everybody in the eight makeup was just trying to to make it work but they ultimately enjoyed the process and it, fox was still shaky on how the film was actually going to turn out but the more that the dailies came back, and the more that the the ape makeup seemed to keep working, the more that everybody felt that like we might have something here. Um, though there is one major element of this of the film that was um, filmed but actually did not make it into the final cut. There was a major plot point within the second half of the movie, uh, where in uh, Heston's character Taylor would discover that he had gotten nova pregnant and there was a lot of discussion about how that again you know would that continue the new evolutionary line and how that would affect his relationship with nova and yada 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 ultimately the uh decision was made by somebody uh to to cut that whole plot line out of the film and was it because fox didn't want this you know sort of Women to be pregnant out of wedlock, the censors were still sort of big in the 60s. Was it because technically she was, you know, potentially an alien or, or a different version of human? So, like, would it be, you know, in God's image to do this? Uh, the screenwriter Michael Wilson had a lot of theories about why it happened, but ultimately uh, they had to kind of cut around that plot line for the editing of the second half of the film. Um, which because it was majorly a uh, major part of that film. And, and Wilson says somewhere on some conning room floor, there's, there's about 20 minutes of stuff. That's probably out of, out of the movie because of that, which, you know what, honestly is for the best. <laughs> I think, I think the movie turned out just well. Um, one other funny story I want to mention. Um, and I guess some of the stuff we'll mention during the movie as well. Come uh, Hunter also told a story where, she went up to heston at one of the first test screenings to just catch up with him and see what he was doing and heston realized he had never met her outside the eight makeup so she did he didn't know who she was and she was like no i I was in the movie with you i'm I'm Zira," (laughs) and he's like oh i i like because because all the actors had to be in the eight makeup for essentially their entire day heston would get there they're all in their makeup he would leave and they would have to sit there and get out of their makeup so he never knew kim outside of her role but uh uh, he, uh, they had a lovely conversation after he realized who she actually was. That's funny. Uh, so, yeah, the movie, Regan wraps up its filming in August of 1967 and comes out uh, in April 1968. So a uh, very lengthy process of editing and waiting for that summer season to kind of pop up. Uh, but it was a movie of, of passion. It was Arthur P. Jacobs had the script that he wanted to, to make. It was Heston seeing something in the movie. It was it was Serling and Wilson sort of seeing the the, the cultural you know, reflection they could put in this movie. It was, you know, the, the technical performance. It was Roddy being passionate about like, hey, this is a really fun role for me. Like like I want to mention just Roddy seemed like he was having the time of his life on this first movie. And it's no wonder we'll get to see him a lot in these movies. Like there was even an incident where next door to their filming there's the Carol Burnett show. And he just showed up in his full eight makeup without telling anybody. Cause he was just like, he was so giddy to be in this makeup and have a, a wonderful time doing it. And, and I think, and we'll talk about it as we get into the movie, but I think it's a lot of that passion from everybody that really makes the movie what it is and sort of or helps really establish this movie as sort of the classic that it becomes cool and shall we talk talk about it let's let's get this uh, I was trying to trying to fit in a quote trying to fit in a quote right (laughs) let's get our stinking paws on this movie (laughs) you damn dirty apes
1: Cornelius was right Jack he proved it Man was here first. You owe him your science, your culture, whatever
0: civilization you've got. Then answer be this. If man was superior, why didn't he survive?
1: Wiped out by a plague, some natural catastrophe, a storm of meteors. From the looks of some parts of this planet, I'd say that was a fair bet. But we
0: can't be sure.
1: He is. He knew all the time, long before you found your cave. He knew. Defender of the faith. Guardian
0: of a terrible secret. That's it, isn't it, Doctor? What I know of man was written long ago. Set down by the greatest ape of all, our lawgiver. Cornelius, come here. Reach into my pocket. Read to him the 29th scroll. Sixth verse. Beware the beast man, for he is the devil's pawn. Alone among God's primates, he kills for sport or lust or greed. Yea, he will murder his brother to possess his brother's land. Let him not breed in great numbers, for he will make a desert of his home and yours. Shun him. Drive him back into his jungle there, for he is the harbinger of death. I found nothing in the cave to alter that conception of man, and I still live by its injunction. Planet of the Apes, the original 1968 film that starts off this franchise. Man, what a movie! Like, it's, it's, it's just so It's a good movie. Yeah. Well, it, it's funny because Will and I actually watched this together. Uh, yes. It... Yeah. Yeah. We should mention this. Uh, for the for the first time since so I think we figured figure out for the first time since Get Smart all the way in 2019 or no, 2020. Sorry, As I, my time has already flown by so much for the first time since Get Smart at in September 2020. is the first time that we watched one of these movies together, actually. Uh, and it was it was a good time. And uh, it, it was just really fun to revisit this because this is a movie I love. And, and very similar to you just mentioned earlier that I didn't see this movie probably until college like I probably just you know as when again film school you're trying to see all the movies you can trying to see all the famous movies I had known about all the other apes films I think that was right around the time right that the first of the of the reboot films of the modern circus era films were coming out so I had seen this movie until I got to college and man like just it lives up to its reputation in so many ways like it is a movie that it's still very fun to watch. It's still the ape makeup is still so impressive. The the it's one of those movies where it's like the iconicness is so iconic that it is like a cheer moment when you get to the big lines and the big moments, and um the like uh you know the, the it's a madhouse and don't get your target pause off me, damn 38. the ending, all that's like still there but I think it's a movie also where there are so many of the little things that you just kind of remember when you go back to the movie. And it's something that I, I really, really love this film. And, and I think it, it really lives up to that reputation it has as one of the classics of, of sci-fi cinema.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we we had briefly talked about it which which was funny again I want to kind of go back to that real quick about how yeah no it had been almost pretty much two years since Nick and I had watched one of these movies together like uh, and it's just and for really no other reason other than it's just uh, you know at a assert obviously there were there was an obvious reason why we didn't do it for a while and then it just you know schedules live in different places it's just easier to maintain that way so I know you were watching it and then I was like, well, what are you doing now? He's like watching it. So I said, oh, cool. I'll just come over. So I popped over to Nick's place and we watched it and it was just fun to watch it that way because it's fun to have that commentary yeah. while while we watch it. And we had also already had seen it. So it made having commentary a little bit more um, a, a little bit easier to do. But so that's all that. So getting back to the movie itself, um, I think I, the way I described it last night, it really is kind of like a lightning in a bottle type uh, movie. That's the phrase, right? Yes. You get lightning in a bottle, right? Yeah. That, that's it. Yeah. For The reason when I said it, it didn't sound right, it was like.
0: Yeah, lightning in a bottle. Yeah. Cause Cause it's, it's, yeah. It's, hard to, it's hard to do. Yes. It's hard to do.
1: Yeah. It's, it's impossible to do, really. Who yeah. came up with that phrase? It's like catching lightning in a bottle.
0: What? I'm sure I can look it up, but to yeah. keep 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 talking about lightning in bottles in in terms of this movie. But
1: okay, yeah. So it really is a lightning in a bottle type movie because it in it, it, in some ways it, there's a very there's a lot of key moments like the movie is very much of its era, but there's a lot of key moments that could have turned this movie into just kind of like you know uh you know well done. But still sci-fi schlock really Mm -hmm. um and and i can point out what those things are that kind of i don't want to say elevate but turns it into a rather solid sophisticated like twilight zone episode of a movie and and there are certain aspects of the movie that are kind of were kind of interesting to think about when you're watching it. obviously we have the whole like you know this movie is kind of ultimately based off a twist and but then you watch that and when you go back and watch it you're just so engrossed with the movie itself um and then when you really pay attention to the details like there's a lot of heavy lifting in the movie there's a lot of like smart um interesting concepts uh obvious the, obviously the metaphors are obvious but still are well done And um, and then there's also a lot of like different points of view that that the movie operates on, uh, whether it be like the point of view of the Charles Heston's character or whether it be the point of view of the apes. And they all just harmoniously work together. And it's it's just it's 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 really good.
0: (laughs) Oh, yeah. A hundred percent. Just to just to pivot real quick, I did just look up the origins of lightning in a bottle. Allegedly, it comes from Benjamin Franklin with one of his lightning experiments with the kite. He was trying to actually catch lightning in a bottle as part of his experiment. Right. So that's where allegedly it comes from. And,
1: um, you know, that sounds like you know what that sounds like. That sounds like a plot line that would be like, I don't know, like in like a Percy Jackson. Like, I don't know. It's like, oh, my God, it's the it's Benjamin Franklin's lightning in the bottle. He actually that- did it.
0: That's that's the direction the National Treasure franchise should have that, gone. Yeah, I was thinking
1: it really should be that. It's like, you know, now it's not just the the declaration it's it's Ben Franklin's actual lightning in a bottle. No, cuz you
0: know how it would go. It would be like the thing where they're like someone thinks it's like Sean Penn's character thinks it's actual lightning in a bottle. Like that's impossible. But then but then Nick Cage is like, "No, it's actually a metaphor." For this, right, and like it's like actually a key that does this over this. It's like right, it's like, an right, actual, right. like it's yeah. like a step along the way. Wait, are, is Sean Penn in those movies? No, not Sean Penn. Sorry, Sean Bean. Oh,
1: is Sean Bean in those movies? <laughs> he's in the he's the villain in the first one. I've never seen National Treasure.
0: You've never seen National. No, oh, that's, I have
1: That's the next franchise we should do. <laughs> let's watch.
0: Let's watch the two National. I, Fra- I I have never. No, I've never seen it. I think at some point. Okay, now there's two things we have to do on this podcast. <laughs> At one point, we have to watch the core. That okay. still has to happen. Okay. And then we have to do a mini little thing on the two national treasures. Story. All right. We have Double to. Feach. Double yeah. feature, um, Double Um But anyway. Uh, so,
1: yeah. but So, Planet of the Apes, um, light, which is an actual lightning in a bottle movie. Um, just really good.
0: Yeah, I really enjoyed
1: watching it. And it's fun. It's funny. It's silly. Yeah. Actually, there is like a level of fun and levity to it without it like being a romp. Um, I think because I think if you watch the
0: movie, it's really easy in a number of different ways to imagine the apes, whether it be the makeup or the performances going awry. But again, in that lightning in a bottle sense, it's the right exact tone. I, I think one of the things you mentioned last night, which I was very eager to agree with. Was what's really nice about the movie is that the apes speak. There's a there's a contemporary manner in which they speak. They feel like, you know, they're kind of casual with each other. They feel like real society and real people with each other. And then you have, you know, the high and mighty Zaius who kind of talks in a little bit more of a, you know, not regal, but like, you know, a higher educated register. But then you have like the, the guerrilla prison guards who are like just kind of like joking with each other and like being like, you know, you know, kind of racist towards the human people. And like that, like that, that, that sort of, ha- there's a real feeling to the apes and their performances, uh, especially with our main ape characters. But I think it without well, the entire society, like that really makes the movie work in that sense.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that the, you're right. The way that I had said it last night was that there's not a lot of like sci-fi mumbo jumbo and jargon, despite it being like, I mean kind of cuz the conceit is they they're trying to sell you on the idea that this is like an alien planet. Like that yeah. that's kind of obviously we like cuz it's 100% totally an alien planet. It's definitely not Earth. No way. It can't be Earth. It's it's an alien, it's an alien planet. Yeah. But um but I, I I that did stick out to me um as I was watching it about just how contemporary and like how um just devoid of kind of like sci-fi jargon there was like the way like there were just little there were just little bit and there are a few really funny lines that are very like you know a writer really being happy with themselves but I think the things we're talking about like you know they um the cousin uh the cousin ape, um zero Zira, zero's cousin uh, her, her her nephew yeah. nephew nephew sorry when he comes in, and then he's just like the guys, the guards, like, "What are you doing here?" He's like, "Ah, oh, well, you know, the the anti uh, or like the anti um euthanasia society is like really getting up in arms about this, so <laughs> I'm here to take them off your hands." So it's just in the way in which like it's said, it's like which is, which is kind of smart too, because you know, given where the movie goes, it really threads this needle to make that ultimate reveal at the end work where there is an alien quality to it but it's
0: very easily accessible mm-hmm. yes yeah well 100% and I it I really comes down to it. I think a movie like this needs its performers to really make the movie work and I think that is something that this movie does in spades uh, especially with our apes but I I you know give all the credit to world to to Heston to just you know really sort of being the exact type of lead this movie needs, honestly. Um, it's impressive to watch, like, because I'm not very, you know, well-versed in, in much of Heston's other work. Like, I know, obviously, of, like, Ben-Hur and, and stuff like that. We talked about his Wayne's World 2 cameo last night as well, and sort of, like, the, the renaissance he had kind of in that second half of his career. But I'm not, like, a Charleston Heston you know, expert by any means, but you can exactly tell the type of actor he is from this performance, and it's always something I really enjoy watching him. Just from the opening moments when he's on the ship and he's doing that monologue, oh, like he's he's just so he's exactly the type of tailor this movie needs, hundred percent, and he brings that character to life.
1: Yeah, the great thing about Charlton Heston in this movie is not only him because he just like any every moment that he's on screen just chews it like he's chewing like 10 pieces of bubble gum at the same time like it's just like the like every scene is a stake to him and he's yeah. just chewing away at it and it's definitely like an air that's why i said like he's not really maybe in in terms of like you know uh success and how people know him but He's not a movie star like Tom Cruise is a movie star. Like this is a movie star. It's like I'm in the movies and I'm going to own every single line that I say and you're going to see all of my teeth and I'm going to be just really intense. And and he so he's he's great in that and um and then there's and you know the the bare-chested machismo to it just maybe one or two lines away from saying like something too problematic which I actually appreciated like when I was watching this like there there's a few kind of questionable things and actions that he says but it's like you know it, it uh, I I thought that they I thought that they tastefully handled his character to not just be a complete kind of like you know uh aggressive like unlikable guy yeah. like I didn't find him unlikable in the movie like I, I found him hilarious cuz but 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 this gets back to the to the real point I wanted to make which was a point of view thing that I thought was very fascinating for the movie. His character comes off as like, as if like Charleston Heston like knows what his role in this type of movie is like, he is the guy he is like, you know, he's like the, the lead captain. He's the Kirk. He's like, he's like, I know, like I'm in a sci-fi movie and I just got to get to the end of it. Like, and it's like, I'm on an alien planet and I'm going to, teach you the wisdom that you need to know along the way and then by the end of the movie just gets the fucking rug pulled out from under him and 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 the and it feels like the movie treats it that way like that he like as soon like the level of he seems like he really has all his shit together up until those apes show up yeah and then he's like what the hell and then when he you know kind of gets his bearings a little bit, and then we get to the end, then it's just gets the rug pulled out from under him. So it kind of like excuses any of that laughable machismo that comes before because he kind of gets humbled ultimately.
0: Yeah. No. Um, and again, I think it's just it's just he's just fun to watch though. Like I mean, obviously we have all the iconic moments and lines with him, but just it really is like any scene he has, especially when he's speaking. It's just it's just a treat to watch. And I think he also he helps sell the seriousness of the apes, too. And I think like that's also an important element of what he brings to the table. Like when he's having these discussions with Zira and Zaius and Cornelius that he he's just talking to them as if they are real apes. Right. Like there's there's no sort of it just makes it feel all the more real. Right. Uh,
1: right. It, like There are because it's like you do have to realize that. You know you as an audience you're coming from the perspective of like you you know that you know charles has is from like human society and you know he's convincing he's trying to convince the apes that but then you have the other ape, You have like dr zaius who uh thinks all of that is nonsense and maybe no more things than he let on but then you have like you know our good guy apes who are like advocating for him but they're advocating from the point of view of like you know a scientific discovery and so it's not quite on the same level that Charles heston ones but there's it, a lot of interesting points of view that the movie operates on
0: yeah and I, and I think it also does well with all those characters because i've always loved how kim Hunter's Zira, like her optimism it, it's just very expressive in her eyes too like when she's just talking to all the her human like you know sort of experiments not experiments but like her pets and everything like that like like the, the, her, the, what she's studying is what I should say. Like, you know, her her the, the human that she has to study, like she treats them like we treat like we go to like, hey, like a zookeeper treats like they're the bear and like, hey, right. how you doing today, buddy? And but like when she starts realizing that there's something different about Taylor, like just the way that Kim Hunter has her eyes light up through the makeup, I, I, I always have really loved how that character is. And her look is, again, as iconic as any of the other ones. And I, I'm going to give a little bit of a a time for myself to just, I want to talk about how much I love Roddy McDowell. Like I love Roddy McDowell as an actor because obviously like when I saw this movie for the first time, like I knew, hey, like he's great in the movie. But over the time since then, I have just discovered so much more of his work because Roddy's never been like the hugest star, but he is someone who has worked throughout history. And like now I know him a lot more familiarly with his Disney work because he's in one of my favorite movies of all time, That Darn Cat. He has this really fun starring role in a Disney Western called The Adventures of Bull with Griffin. I've also talked about my love for the Black Hole. He's in that movie. But I just love the passion and the energy he brings to all the roles he performs. And especially as Cornelius here, he knows exactly how to bring that character to life the voice is just so iconic in and of itself of just roddy mcdowell but just he gives it that air like his he's got great comic timing yeah that that was the thing
1: that stood out to me the most just like he really he's just good
0: he's good he's funny he's likable um And I think he he, even more so than almost anybody else, he knows how to make that makeup work to Mm -hmm. his advantage. I think he uh, he really knows how to make a, a look work like like there's moments where he's just sort of like looking very annoyed at what's going on around him and it just comes across so thoroughly through that makeup
1: what it, was the what was the bit when i i think he like taylor like he he like he slams something down like he writes something and then he slams it down and then he looks at him he's like touchy aren't we <laughs> is, yeah like that i was like yeah like like stuff like that is like yeah really good
0: yeah it's it's just so much fun to see him like be so fun in yeah. these movies because i again i love him in that darn cat and I think at some point I want to show you Bob Griffin because I think you'd enjoy him in that lead role. I think he's also very good and very mm-hmm. funny. Um,
1: and you know, and it, it, it's something because I, I, you know, I'm one of these people, like, as everybody always says, like in movies, especially when it comes down to makeup and like seeing the actor about like the eyes, like the eyes, you need to be able to see the eyes. That's where all the storytelling is. and And I, and I think that's kind of like a, masturbatory overused uh thing that people say to sound smart when they're talking about movies it's true here though because just like the way that that makeup works and the way that you know all the actors it, mo- mostly the main uh group of uh apes the way that not only that they like speak through the the makeup and the great makeup but like the express the expressiveness of their eyes like yeah. really uh just ties it all together
0: 100 percent yeah yeah um, and, and also, I want to mention uh, while we're talking about actors here, um, Maurice Evans as Dr. Zayas, I think, is also one of the most important performances in this movie. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that sort of the, the gravitas he gives as a leader of, of science and a leader of the faith, and sort of his hold over the ape society as their sort of leader, um, it really ties the movie together and its themes together. Mm -hmm. Um, And especially like he has this kind of private conversation with Taylor and the stuff at the end where he's talking about like, yeah, he knew this the whole time. He knew that possibly humans existed before apes. Like, I I just think that he really sort of tied it again. That's it. Go finish your point. And I I think it's also, again, it's just, it's hard to separate sort of that performance with the iconic look and that orangutan look of, Dr. Zayas and his ilk in the movie, I think also really adds and and also to mention real quick, the costuming is just fantastic as well. I love, again, the orange sort of thing that the apes, uh, the orangutans wear. I love sort of the more green of the chimps. Like, I just love how it all kind of functions and works together.
1: Yeah. And, and there's a good kind of like unspoken visual storytelling to the whole thing, because like if you really watch it carefully, I don't believe that they kind of say that. No, they don't ex- say this explicitly in the movie about like, you know, there's an unspoken like what the roles of like different like apes are like, like all of them are civilians. But when we see jobs like the. Uh, the orangutans are like the elders, like they're like the, the the elders who like run the society, and the gorillas are like you know the the muscle of, of yeah. everything, and uh, the chimps are um, like sci- or like scientists and stuff. So I thought that, I thought that was interesting. I did want to bring this up because I was kind of curious what your takeaway of this was. so it, and it's really not important either way, but maybe it is um so is the idea that he knows that because dr Zayas is kind of coming from this point of view of he's like man is a violent animal Mm -hmm. that shouldn't be domesticated it it would just be best if we just put them all down um and going as far as to say that even charles heston being able to talk and everything is like the scientist's messing with his mind and doing some sort of mad science on him and making him, uh, be able to talk. And then, but then there's like a hint that maybe towards the end it's revealed. I mean, spoilers, it's earth.
0: <laughs> it's like, I, I can't Oh my graphic. God. Yeah. I was wrong.
1: <laughs> it was earth all, all along. along. Um, but yeah, so and they kind of hint that he may or may not know that. Like, what was your takeaway? Does he know? Oh,
0: I think he 100% knows the truth about the planet okay. that at that, the very point because, it, because he specifically tells Taylor that, like, if you go to the Forbidden Zone, you're not going to like what you find. And he also mentions explicitly as well that, like, humans i I know about the humans and i know they are a race of of war like that they they're constantly at war they're constantly bickering with each other and they will call they will cause destruction they will cause uh you know that sort of thing and I, i do believe that there's there's the implication that he sort of Knows a little bit more about what has happened to this planet, right? Before. Right,
1: yeah. Because I, I thought that it could, you could play it either way, where he's yeah, maybe he doesn't know exactly like it to the level that Charles Heston would, where it's like, oh, this used to be Earth, it, right? I, I, well, I, well, I, think, it was... I think
0: that's, yeah, I think that's more what it is. I think he knew that like humans. I think that he has an inkling that humans were a dominant society at one point and then destroyed themselves, right? I right, yeah, and because yeah. I think his whole implication is that the reason that the older apes basically let down the law of like humans are like the devil's breed uh as as was is read in the scroll is i think just the idea that like the the more that we can like make sure humans don't get back in the power the better right right yeah yeah no
1: i think i think you're right because you know cuz there is cuz what's funny about the movie is that it really is all up until the end like operating as like a big like metaphor it's 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 like trying to it's it's shiny it's a putting up a mirror to our own society where it's like our leaders are kind of like you know kind of controlling not only society but they're controlling um you know science and scientific discovery through the through the veil of faith and you know and and law and stuff like that and um you know, and, and, you know, I can't think of any off the top of my head, but there are very there are some very poignant, um, you know, kind of contemporary uh, so, uh, social and political lines that allude to like, how can a man be a person of faith and science at the same time? Like, you know, there's a lot of stuff like that. Yeah. Um, In, in, in the movie. um, But at the same time, it, it, it's so pointed and it's so obvious, but it never feels like preachy no I think there's which, which, which I kind of like I, I, I think because I it. think
0: it's just it, it, it's such a it's something that still resonates today but it, it, you're right it, it never really feels like it's like we're, we're doing the point and I, I think the whole courtroom sequence in and of itself is is a sequence that over the times I've watched this movie more and more I've become one of my favorite points of the film because I think it, it does a lot in in showcasing sort of this absurdity of this world but then I think that's what it is. I think they kind of play it sort of this like the absurdity of like how they're judging this man not having a soul because he doesn't know like what's the second law uh, of the sacred scroll and like why does he why does a human have no you know like that sort of stuff like why 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 does why does the apes have the spark and you do not like that sort of thing and like that's sort of this idea of this absurd and it's like a kangaroo court situation but then it's something that easy like you kind of take a think about it for a moment you're like oh but this feels real to our world as well and sort of that scenario and sort of the the, yeah. the system being against him from the moment one you know it, right it, it's right. just so fascinatingly like how they portray it and even when we get that see no evil here no we were to speaking to of a moment it is a moment of them essentially like ignoring the truth and and as much as dr zyra zira, zira is 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 basically showcasing like you guys are wrong. They refuse to acknowledge it because they can't. Because one of the whole points of that trial is like under ape law, man has no rights. So there is no reason for this trial. The man is guilty regardless because he has no rights. Right. And I think and I thought they did an interesting job in that court
1: too because I think they they did they did a pretty good job of like making it pretty clear that like I forget exactly what it was or the line but like one of like the the judges or whatever has a moment where he's just kind of like oh my god i gotta do this on a monday
0: like he's like it's kind of like or like it is like, like
1: one of those things where like zay is ha- also has to make right. his case and as much like, as the other and it's people. like
0: i don't want you to make this course a farce like we're already it, it, dealing it, it, with it, this it, human yeah oh, oh is, my I'm,
1: god can i say my favorite line that he says oh, ple- yeah please oh please do, my god there, there's so many good lines in this movie but the one that like literally had me in tears <laughs> was um oh my god where where's my uh notes here it is uh yeah because uh i forget who says what but then one of the judges is like these
0: remarks are profane and irrelevant <laughs> and i'm like i'm gonna use that
1: these these
0: profane that, tri- that trial has another great roddy mcdowell moment where um uh taylor hands him a note and He's like, read it, like, read it. And he's like, I don't want to read it. Like, and then yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah. he, he goes up and he's just so nervous. And he, I love this so much. He's like, No nervous. It's, it's like, Well, the uh, uh, since you are not allowing uh, the defendant to speak for his own terms, he has given me a note uh, with his stuff on it. He tries to give it to Zayas, and Zayas is like, Just read it, just, just read it, Cornelius. And then, like, he's just like, all right, like, like the whole note is about like I am from another planet, and then immediately right. like he he starts like reading it like like nervously, and then Zayas is like give the, give that to me. It's, it's nonsense. It's a joke. Yeah, and not I, a great one at that. Like that whole bit is really funny. It is. It,
1: it, 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 it's good, and um, yeah. It, but and it but it is funny too because one of the things about that keeps it, it 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 what it's what makes this movie a lightning in the bottle type of movie because you know going forward kind of the cats out of the bag because again i keep on going back to this the movie is operating under this you're not really supposed to know uh that it's earth so it just kind of is like oh like a it's an alien planet that you know we're kind of like making some like similarities and metaphors to um but then like as you move forward with the movies like you're you, everything after this is with the context even if you reboot it it's all done with the context that like that it's our world or some version of our world, or there's some connection to people were people first and then apes uh, rose up. So the metaphor becomes a lot more obvious. Like you, you can't really yeah. bullshit around it as much anymore. Yeah. Um, so that is that. So that's kind of what's interesting about this movie. But I will say this. The only the only thing that I don't know and I don't think it affects the movie that much, but the only thing that doesn't play as well for me is that it, it, you, when you go back and rewatch it, you are watching it the whole time knowing it's Earth. And then maybe that's good, but I don't know. Like it it, it was, it, it's interesting to watch it when the I mean, cat's out that, of the bag.
0: I think it's also, that's gotta be something to deal with with any movie oh, with, oh, oh. with the... but this is what i was going to say because the movie is clearly operating
1: under that like you're not supposed to think it's earth yeah like it's like all the dialogue all everything about it um is operating that way so it is kind of it it is kind of interesting to watch it back and then you know it is earth the whole time so like the mystery itself of like where is man how do they fit into this because there's a lot of that in this movie so maybe that part doesn't quite um, isn't quite as enticing the whole mystery of where man came from, because you're watching the movie and you're you know, you know yeah. uh, it the whole time. That would be like the only kind of knock I
0: would put on the yeah. movie.
1: And, and I, I wouldn't even call it a knock. It's just like kind of a weird nitpick.
0: And I think it's also like something that's a general, something you have to deal with with any movie that, you know, has a twist in some respect. I think that that, that's something. Sure,
1: sure. I I would, I would agree with that. But I mean, there, there's some movies where I think like, like Sixth Sense is a good example of that. Like Sixth Sense, a lot of early M. Night Shyamalan movies, like work that way where it's like, it's like the twist is kind of like, like a thing that kind of, uh, I always say like the, the, the twists in M. Night Shyamalan movies are like those movies, they tell their complete story. And then something happens that is like the twist that kind of, um, not re- even recontextualizes the movie; it just contextualizes the movie and explains it, and it's fun in a different way. Whereas, like this movie, it's leaning like really hard on that mystery of it, so of where man comes from. So then, when you rewatch the movie and you know, you kind of do realize like the mystery itself and them unraveling that isn't quite as mm-hmm. interesting from a plot yeah. perspective. Yeah. Um. So I think that's more where I'm coming from with it. I
0: think it's an interesting take on it. I still. Saw- yeah. I have no, I have no problems with. with yeah, Washington. but you
1: know, it really is only in that bit with the uh, when they're in the cave at the yeah, end. Yeah, that's right. I, I think that's the only part I felt that way because it's like when they're talking about like, how do you explain this and how do you explain that? Like, and then you're kind of at that point. You're like, okay, I want let, to. Let's get to the, the Statue of Liberty. At the yeah. End.
0: <laughs> um, there's a lot. Like, I, I do want to mention a couple other of uh, 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 things. Uh, please, please do dude like all the iconic lines of oh, this movie of course are, are are so good and i i want to <laughs> like obviously like we've talked about get your stinking paws off me you damn dirty ape um i think the best no 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 you got to say it like him he says it like get your stinking paws
1: off me you
0: damn dirty ape <laughs> and i like again like the way that it's shot to like all the all the other apes are like whoa like yeah. everybody's like oh he talked yeah um good direction
1: too like when that happens like that is just as effective like every time i've seen it like mm-hmm. and and it's funny because you know he can talk you know what right. i mean it's not like it's funny because contextualize that with the big which is funny because it, they use the same line in um rise right rise rise dawn war is, is, I, is, is, think, is I how think that's it, it. we'll figure it out is the Sorry. first one so rise you know the big you know when uh you know Draco Draco Malfoy says uh yeah. it, like he, he says the line and then there's the big like Caesar saying no and it's like a big moment you're like oh my god he can talk all the other apes kind of give like a look like that but like here it's like you know that guy can talk so then and when he does and it, it's so effective yeah, like, it, yeah, it works.
0: Also, got we got to mention too, uh, the famous laugh uh, in the first part of the movie. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, because obviously the other part too is that the first like thirty minutes are like Taylor and his like compatriots from the thing they crash land onto the, the planet. They're trying to survive. You know, has, what,
1: what's the idea? They're like they're supposed to be kind of like colonizers, or yeah, like, essentially, yeah.
0: yeah, they're kind of like colonizers leaving Earth um, to like you know. Go to a different planet, and then like they kind of like are figuring out like, well, we're not on the planet we're supposed to be. You know, th- something happened. Like, because also like the the one woman on board had there was like an air leak in her thing, so she's like aged up like horribly and like dead. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So there, there's like there. I don't think they explicitly ever say like this was our mission, but essentially they're like, yeah, we're explorers and we're gonna go to another planet. And we're gonna like you know have discoveries and I. Because and the other implication is is that. Uh, Taylor was very eager to get off Earth because his his whole opening monologue is like, tell me if anybody's even listening to this, like, do you still war against your brother? Like, he seems like this was like a, a mission he was willing to take, like, even if he was never going to go to Earth again, spoiler, he does, because um, he, he's very fed up with the way that the human society you know, ha- has treats itself
1: Right, right, and then, and so in the scene that you're about to mention, like he sees uh, one of his other uh um, compatriots, um, like uh, put up a little American flag, yeah, uh, on like uh, near the crash site, and Taylor, who's like a, is like at this point he's like we're beyond nations and forget that old like like he's like that's kind of his attitude,
0: right? So it's then, just like yeah. everything you've ever known is dead. Like we are we are seven hundred years or whatever into the future. We are no, we're two thousand years into the future. And like any anything you've ever known is turned to dust. Like that sort of his attitude. Right. And yeah. He, he put the, the guy puts up the American flag, and we just get the, the classic little shot of just like, <laughs> has to be like, ha <laughs>
1: ha it's and it's a, done because it's done in that way where they probably laughed that they probably did the
0: laugh there but then they probably re-recorded it later like,
1: yes. and then the camera pans it, up it be, i great. think that's also
0: the part of it like zooms in on him and it pans up past him into the sky yeah that whole bit's great, great. um I, I i mean my favorite line of the movie 100 percent, is uh uh when uh after he speaks for the first time and he's with with Nova in the cage, and they separate him, and they're and they're hitting him with the fire hose. <laughs> oh, Harry! is taking you.
1: you're Daniel,
0: you, you Harry, stop. Shut up, you freak. And then the, the gorilla's calling him like, just Sh- shut your mouth, you damn freak, which I also, again, sort of that contemporary nature, I just call him a freak. And then he's just like, it's a madhouse! <laughs> Water turns off and he's just like, a madhouse! <laughs> It
1: also kind of like it also like listen. I, I brought up rise earlier and and I, and I like I like rise, but you know it, it's it is it is it kind of like shows why the recontextualization and using those lines for fun uh, are fun, but they don't quite work as well. No, and this because it's just it's it's just such hammy mayhem you know yes. what I mean like it's just and, so, like, and, and,
0: and I think it's like because so... of the gravitas it, it is it is it is Scene century it is the gravitas <laughs> that Heston gives those lines like Heston the way that he screams it's a madhouse like no other actor can really do that like it's no. it, it feels so him I think that's what makes those lines and even the end line the the very famous you maniacs <laughs> you blew it up like even that it's just everything feels so real out of heston even as hammy and as centurion is it feels so him that that's what makes those lines iconic is, yeah. is how heston brings it to life no you're 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 right
1: you're right and like you know it, we we were on the edge we were watching it we were on the edge of our seats every time we knew a line a famous line was coming up um yeah yeah it's all, all all good shit
0: yeah there's and there's there's still so much to talk about like i like i also it's interesting how they deal with the other two compatriots like uh the the uh, there's uh, the one african-american dude that uh is basically stuffed and put in a museum after he's killed mm-hmm. uh and then the other guy uh landon is uh lobotomized Lobotomized. which is
1: another oh oh and that that leads to one of my other favorite lines of the thing probably one of my like underrated ones but he's like you cut up his brain you bloody baboon
0: (laughs) (laughs) right because he's trying to prove that like hey i'm not the only one there's this other guy right and then the implication is essentially Zayus, like basically lobotomized this guy before he could like make any trouble and then obviously uh because like uh Taylor injures his throat, so they don't know he can talk just yet, but he's trying to do writing and everything like that. Wait, he can talk? He can talk, he can talk, he can talk, I can sing! (laughs) Um, The other one I wanted to mention, you know, because we've been all over the place, and we're kind of talking about many of the main points, but this is also a movie, interestingly enough, right, that especially in comparison to other franchises we looked at, that isn't, like, too, like, action sequence-based but the one there is one sort of major sort of chase scene uh in the middle of the film when 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 uh Taylor essentially escapes his his uh uh he's still mute right you know before we get to the damn dirty apes line where he's mute and he's essentially like you know trying to escape and and running around the different elements of the society. I thought those I like the interestingness of this in a couple ways. One is that I do like how this does give us a little insight, a little bit into just the general ape society because they have the museum and they have sort of like a you know fruit cart and like an outdoor market type of thing that he like swings across. Like there is sort of a a way to see like the ape society, how it functions without actually going into the daily ape society. Uh, but I think it was also something that you mentioned is like how this kind of that sequence connects to what we kind of known as a modern set piece where, you know, it, there is still that instinct to have something like that in in a movie like this, even of its age. Yeah. Yeah. I was,
1: yeah. It, it's, it's funny because, I, yeah, because if that was done now, it would be there is a couple things like, you know, like the hunt, the hunt at the beginning, I think is is kind of like the most solid, but the whole random chase in the middle. Um, I think like if you made it now, the gunfight at the end uh, in the Forbidden Lands would probably be like way bigger. Um, so I just thought it was interesting that it was in there and I was thinking like, yeah, that would be a bigger thing now, but it, it's just always interesting to see that that impulse to add. Like a moment, like a, like an action beat was yeah. always there for right. a lot of film. And
0: especially because he does like, he does the thing where he does swing on the roof of whatever, for, for whatever reason, like the roof of like that market. Right. Yeah. That was
1: the one that they, they stood out to me. And then doesn't he like, he takes like a rod or something. And yeah. Then, like trips like trips some. Age. I also
0: love that the, there's the mom and her kid in the museum. And, like, they get scared by him. I like that little moment. And this is some fun, like, camera stuff. Like, when he runs down the little spiral staircase thing in the in the museum. And then it pans back up. And you see the gorilla, like, people coming through. It was, like, that was really fun. And I do really love that scene, too. When uh, when Zira brings Heston home after he begins writing. And, like, basically Roddy's, like, just, like, not, not with it at all. And then, oh, well, the other line, like, why fly yeah <laughs> but then where it, would it get you <laughs> yeah the, he makes the paper airplane and they're both like so like I love the moment when he makes the paper airplane and it like flies and then Cornelius Roddy is just like looks up to it he like walks up to it he just like studies it like wow wait this right. could actually work
1: right yeah yeah that it, it yeah it's interesting the world that they craft because we also talked about like it is a movie where like the apes use guns, like it, it's yeah. Because you, know, they, you they,
0: kind of forget that because you kind of think like oh they're on horses they probably have like what spears or something but no they're they're a gun. Well, they, it, well
1: that's because because you know eventually like you know the more modern apes movies kind of go in that route where like having a gun is like more of a big deal. Yeah, but like here it's like oh no they they have guns um and but and and they speak uh, in a contemporary fashion but there are aspects like you know flying seems ridiculous and they do live kind of like in you know a, a like a like a Flintstones town like uh right
0: and and the the, the fact that like the it's a very small looking society that they they have a very big emphasis on the sacred scrolls and the ancient lawgiver and we get to see a little bit of a oh that was the other part of the uh the chase sequence where we see a little bit of a of a funeral um, which uh, which uh, Taylor decides to basically desecrate by, <laughs> by jumping over the casket. Um, I've never met an ape I didn't like. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and and one other thing I want to mention, you know, unless you have any other thing that like you know majorly wanted to to get to go about. It, obviously, we've talked about the ending. Yes, that he discovers the Statue of Liberty. It was Earth all along, but just in a general sense, it's very interesting to me especially kind of really considering on this watch like the dourness of the ending here and in the in the sense that like not only does you know taylor get to escape but basically discover that like hey his his whole society blew themselves up in 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 nuclear war most likely but we also get the sense of like the whole point of like going to the cave at the end is that cornelius has been sort of you know took an un, you know took a trip to the forbidden zone which was originally like Yes, you can do it. And then they're like, "No, never mind." He went too far. He's discovered this cave, which implicates that, like, hey, there's like human stuff. Uh, there's a human doll that can talk. There's like dentures and, and eyeglasses that imply that there was a human society before the ape society. And the whole thing was like, okay, well, they're on trial for heresy, Zira and Cornelius, and so this is going to prove that, like, hey, they're not heretics. That they're they're telling the truth. And at the end, Zayus, you know is tied up and lets Taylor escape and has his whole speech. But once he's untied, he's like, Hey, blow up the cave. These guys are on trial for heresy. And they're like, wait, what? They're like, yeah, like, listen, you guys, no one could ever know this. You know, you guys are still in so much trouble for this. And it is essentially like nobody wins. You know, these good guy apes are still going to be taken forcibly back to like, possibly, you know, go to jail for the rest of their lives or, or worse. And Taylor just discovers that like, Hey, your your fellow compatriots really did just destroy their entire society and their entire planet. There is a like, really interesting, like and it, it really that's where the real Twilight Zone Rod Serling nature of it is. Because not every Twilight Zone obviously ends on a dour ending, but that's really sort of the the Rod Serling sort of cynical nature that he could occasionally put into his work that really feels right at home with it with his other writings and his other projects. I just thought it was a very interesting yeah. observation to be like yeah the, it really is a movie where the good guys don't win and it really if anything else it's a, it's a pirate it's a pyrrhic victory.
1: Well I mean but see that's a you know I I'd even uh um kind of piggyback off of that by saying like it's not even like a to me like a good guy bad guy thing it's just kind of like dourness and like because like you know how time in within the within this world uh how it all unfolded is just kind of there's like a futility to it all like yeah, it's like that's... yeah i mean yeah there's some Zayus is doing a bad thing but there is just something like how that last scene is tonally played because it's all kind of like fun and like uh and and like i said uh, very easy to digest but then when you know zeus like oh take that like the scroll out of my pocket and read it like that's where kind of like the movie starts to you know the dourness starts to kind of come in and you realize like oh this is like a little uh, there's a little bit more to like this is just an alien planet like and that the the because up until that point you would be forgiven to just think like oh well the conceit is that the roles are reversed like it's just this is an alien planet where humans are basically animals and apes rule the world but then when he takes out that scroll and he starts reading that there is something a little bit dark about it like yeah. he's like oh it's like it's like man we'll do this man we'll do and even like the look on um on uh you know taylor's face and charles heston's just says it all because yeah. also remember like he is that guy too like this it, kind of reflects like some of what he believes as well or like that he was kind of saying at the beginning of the movie so then as he goes you know down like the beach like tonally the movie just gets very eerie and yeah. well directed,
0: very well directed, especially like the high shots on the cliff of this him on the on the edge of this coast, just walking, and the little hints at the Statue of Liberty, which is of course an I extremely like, and we're talking about iconic, like that last image of the movie where it zooms out, you see the full like top of the Statue of Liberty, like with, with and, and the- it, 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 it's like eerie because
1: it's like. That's the Statue of Liberty, and this is on the coast of some beach somewhere. So then it tells this whole story, like, how did that happen? How did it get there? Is this New York? Did something happen? And then, like, the Statue of Liberty washed up on shore. And it, and it is funny because when you get to another movie, like, Burton's uh, Planet of the Apes, like, how, you know, a lot of those, like, reveals are fun, but, like, they, just not quite as well and eerie as as this. Like yes. and, it, and it still works.
0: Mm-hmm. Hundred um, percent. Though I just just and then we talked about that. And I'm glad we did. But there's one other line I just remembered that I want to make sure I remember that it's to say here is when Heston's leaving the beach, and he's talking to the nephew. Uh, um, well, there's two. One. Where he, when, when Heston uh, shaves, his, yeah, yeah, there's, there's yeah. two, one, when Heston shaves his beard, it's like, why, why did you, uh, why did you take off all your hair? And he's like, well, in where I come from only kids your age have beards. And the nephew's like beards. I don't go for fads. Yeah. <laughs> that was and then, good. And then Cornelius is like, you know, when you, when you lose all the hair, it makes you look less intelligent, which was also another line I like, but the other one was like when he's leaving everybody and it's like, you, you know, like he, like the nephew comes up to, to Taylor and he's like, I think you're still making a big mistake and he's like yeah you keep that up kid you keep what up keep up that rebellious nature remember don't trust anybody over 30. right
1: <laughs> and again it's funny because now he thinks he's got a leg up like he still thinks like this is all gonna work out for him and yeah. it, it's just not, it, not- like he you're, it's like dude you are not aware of the movie that you are in yeah yeah and it's good it, it's, even it's the, really good
0: the, the eeriness of the ending by the way um to go back to that because i'm just thinking about that ending and it's, and it's still so good but one of the other things that makes that eerie so e- ending so eerie is like all you hear we've we've had this like really fun like atonal jerry Goldsmith sports throughout the entire thing and, and goldsmith uh i should mention is really going wild with just doing all different crazy sounds and everything like that it, it's super fun score but the movie ends just on the sound of the waves crashing against the shoreline. And then the credits start in silence, essentially. And that really makes that ending work. You, you can't go into like, OK, Goldsmith's going to do like another like kind of crazy thing with a with a salad bowl where he's like hitting it with like a tong or something like that, mm-hmm. which apparently he did do at one point during like the the, the, the recording of this film. Uh, was like had one of the sounds is like a salad bowl being hit but like the fact that it ends in silence i think is like really makes that image stick in your mind and the fact that the only notes the only sound you hear is those waves like really really makes it effective yeah agreed it's a it's a really it's really, really good, it's like, a really good movie it's like there's nothing else you can say it's like and, and, and it really stands up as watchable and still, the lines and the moments are iconic. There's all these little details that are so fun. The performances are fantastic. The makeup holds up spectacularly. Uh, it, it's just, it's just, it's just an all-time cinema great. It really is. Agreed. And with that, let's just deal into that. The movie was very successful. Again, has its release in April of 1968. Was very critically acclaimed. Was top of the box office. Um, uh, we made a large profit for the studio again for its era. Uh, full worldwide gross of 33 million. Oh, sorry, uh, just a North American gross of 33 million, not including any international success. Uh, Fox was very happy with how it was, and immediately there was a distinct cultural acceptance of the apes. Um, Fox ended up really producing a lot of merchandise, toys, action figures. Uh, postcards, like it became sort of a a mini pop culture phenomenon that really exploded into something else. And and this is where we get the development of eventual TV series that was supposed to be um, one of Roddenberry's TV series we talked about in the uh, Star Trek motion picture episode. Uh, And this is where we get the development of sequels, which is what we'll be talking about next time. Uh, But first, before I get to that sequel, I should mention Uh, The film was nominated for two Academy Awards, Best Costume Design and Best Original Score for a motion picture, not a musical, which was back in the day, we had two different score categories, which is (laughs) crazy to me. Um, But this is also noted as the second movie ever uh, to receive an honorary Academy Award for makeup, uh, which uh, the actual makeup category wouldn't be fully established until 1981 after I believe... I believe it's right either after or it was created specifically for the fly. Um, but this was one of the, this was the second movie to basically make uh, a, a special award for the makeup. Awesome. Um, and yeah, it, and it, it, again, this movie has stood the test of time. As you mentioned, there's various parodies, various references to it in all sorts of media. Uh, and it became, a huge pop culture phenomenon. We're going to be able to talk about that throughout these next four sequels, which is crazy that, again, this is the stuff I'm, I'm really eager to talk about, is these, this series and how this original Planet of the Apes series continues to go down. Uh, so when we come back to Planet of the Apes, we are going to find out what lies beneath the Planet of the Apes uh, from 1970. And it's going to be a very interesting discussion. Looking forward to it, uh, but next time we have another new series to dig into, Will, and I think uh, we've decided on what we're going to do. Yes, is that a question? Yeah, I mean, I was just. Oh, I, was, <laughs> I, th- wait, I thought we did. No, we did. I was okay. Just saying, yeah, I was. I was waiting for you to agree that we did. Oh, we yeah, 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 do. yeah, yeah. Go yeah. ahead. Uh so we are going to be going back into the action genre. Something that we we we've done a lot of kind of science fictionist based and big fantasy things. Um and I think it's time for us to dive back into the action genre. Uh well why do, why don't you why don't we uh head uh go up to the coast, have a few laps. Yeah. Come out to the coast, we'll get together, have a few laps i don't know i was supposed
1: to be on vacation
0: <laughs> we will be celebrating uh the the biggest franchise of one bruce willis as we are going to be going through the five diehard films um which you and i have a very distinct connection to in many ways very much very and uh much. and i think it, it's right with especially with uh yeah, I honestly, it's kind of one of those things with where what we know about Bruce Willis now and what he's struggling with. I think I think it's yes, we will definitely make fun of some of the weirder and, and, and bad parts of that franchise. But I think it's it's celebrate sort of some of his best work as well. Um, and I'm very eager to kind of see. And I like kind of doing these shorter series. I like kind of seeing like something that is kind of finite at this point. We have five films to go through. Um, and next time we're going to be talking about another absolute banger classic of a film. We're going to be talking about the original Die Hard, a.k.a. the greatest Christmas movie ever made.
1: Looking forward to it.
0: All right. With that, we are done here. Uh, Bondslittlepot at gmail.com, twitter.com, so that's 7 facebook.com, so that's Bondslittle007. Uh, like and subscribe, iTunes and SoundCloud. Uh, we, we just got another review. I just noticed someone uh, someone out there said that you love us. Uh, and we're the best. So thank you for your support and your and love. I love and- you,
1: random citizen.
0: Yes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> what?
0: <laughs> this, I, that, was, that, that was good. I That got me. Um, but we, we, again, we love the support. We love you guys. And, then, and also, again, thank you for uh, dealing with our, our occasional weird scheduling stuff. It's just life is uh, sometimes crazy so uh life, is we, life. Try, we, we try to get that we try to get the films out as best we can uh and we, we we will and i have even discussed even further film franchises we'd love to go through so um we're excited for these two franchises i'm excited for beneath the planet of the Apes. i'm excited for die hard i'm excited for more bonzilla coming up great all right everybody take care
1: spike we did it. hair we did it god damn you
0: <laughs> No, don't damn you all to hell. We, we, could, we come, recorded it. <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll see you next time here on the planet of the humans. For now, bye.
1: He really did it. You maniacs! You blew it up! Ah, oh, damn you! God damn you all to hell! No.